in the Grotto Pod. Yes, you are. I'm also here. Yeah. Bridget's also here. Here I am, BQ. Welcome to the bar, the uh, Grotto Pod. Or the Botto Crod. The Botto Crod. I am Larry Rosen. She is Bridget Quinn. So true. Today, our guest is Frances Stroh. Do you think she's ever called Franny? Franny Stroh. Maybe during a... Um, uh, Salinger obsession period, maybe. Oh, see, I was thinking Franny. like 18th century novel. Well, I'm a guy. You know, okay, Salinger's your dude. Anyways, okay. uh, she is the author of a very well-received memoir called Beer Money. And if the name Stroh sounds familiar to you, it should. Well, is it still familiar? Because I grew up in the 70s, way It was familiar. very familiar in yeah. the 70s. Uh, Big beer. You're getting a message, Larry. I'm getting a message. It's <laughs> <laughs> Who is it? Tell me. It's my wife talking about... Our broken washer. Welcome to the inside scoop Wait, where I you learn you about your fix your washer. Your Grotto Pod hosts and there are daily ongoing struggles with appliances. Francis Stroh, uh, the family, the Stroh family. They did not struggle with appliances. Uh, no, uh, I believe it was uh, mid nineteenth century when her uh, great great grandfather started making beer out of a bathtub. We're going to get the whole story from yep. her. Um, it later ballooned, mushroomed, whatever you want to say, and became a huge. I, I think the fifth or Sixth largest brand in the world, Stroh's Beer. You may have heard of it if you're a certain age because... You drank it. Well, you did drink it, but you may not have heard of it if you're younger, oh, if you're one yeah. of those uh, con millennial, millennial people. people. <gasps> uh, Jinx. Because uh, they went out of business. Yep. How does and, that happen? Well, that's a lot of what her novel is about. How it's the not mis- a novel. A novel. How the, what the memoir so is about. It is so not a novel. It is so true. Um, the memoir is about how they uh, – I'm not going to say they blew the fortune. You know, really – and I'm going to talk to her about this because yeah. the understanding is, well, you blew $9 billion. I just saw a headline. It's how to lose $9 billion. Can you imagine? No. I can't. But they didn't blow it. Right. They mismanaged it. They made well, a lot of weird investments. They tried – like a lot of companies, they tried to make a big growth push. Right. And it blew up in their face. Right. Um, now, of course, what do I know? My experience with Stroh's is I've drank it. Uh, hers is and your experience more. with nine billion dollars is. I've heard that people have it. I didn't even know people had that much money, honestly. Yeah, um, I mean, and I live in San Francisco, where there's a lot of money. There's probably there like are people with nine billion dollars bil- oh, living, are? probably within three months. In your zip code, there's oh my gosh, my mouth is hanging open with nine billion dollars. Really? Sure, absolutely. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I did not know this. But you know, you and I have never hobnobbed with people who have nine billion dollars. Probably not. Um, but we're going to hobnob with Francis. And we have hobnobbed. We've hobnobbed with Francis a, a little. I would say that's lowercase hobnobbing. Yeah. But oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard her voice in the lunchroom today and mm. heard a lot of people talking. I was working and could not leave and heard everyone laughing uproariously at something she said. Oh, so good. I want to good. find I'm out what that was. That. Yeah. Uh, there's a few things that uh, I'm hoping to cover in this podcast with Francis Stroh. Now, listeners, let me uh, forewarn you, um, Francis, her book came out in May, I think, of last year. So she spent May or June. I can't remember. I thought it came out in 2015. I could, no, no. I could be wrong. I could be no, because we were planning oh, that's the, right, that's uh, Grotto, right. yep. or the yep. Grotto's 21st birthday party, which that's was right. a smashing success. Oh, yeah, really fun. Uh, I oh, that was only a year Canyon. ago? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. So, she, so her book's been out for... Nine months. It's coming out in paperback. Coming out in paperback. It's been successful for all accounts that yeah. I've heard. It's been the stuff. So she's been on the go, and this is a roundabout way of saying she's also explained the book on dozens of interviews, right? Even podcasts held in much larger studios than this one. And now she's coming home. That would be all. Uh, because this is a podcast that's focused on writers talking about writing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go. I mean, yes, we're going to talk about the book itself, but I also like to talk about. What happens after the book comes out? Yeah. You know a little bit about this. Well, I mean, I'm only at this point. You are reality the infant to her middle aged person. I am. I am an infant, and it's really hard to think about gearing up for a new project when you're in the middle of promoting. And her promotion is huge. Her promotion is really has big. Been huge. Um, and she show, They just did a story on her in the New York Times. Uh, it was a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was huge. I th- and we want to find out about that too. Because what find bumps the book? That. I'm guess- And they sometimes they say, oh. Well, you never know what's going to drive sales, but I would think the New York Times might <laughs> possibly drive sales. Right. And we also want to talk about, you know, the initial genesis of the book was a Forbes magazine article about her family that I right. think talking to her just casually, that gave her the idea to go ahead and write the memoir. Right. I have to say, I was in Toledo last summer because Toledo, I, Ohio. Toledo, because my husband, Roy, 
Mm-hmm. Who's from Toledo, <laughs> uh, outside Toledo, and uh, also had to go to Detroit or got to go to Detroit to look at some art. Which is where Stroh's beer is from. Correct. And I saw beer money everywhere. Really? And those aren't really big book towns. I mean, there's great bookstores and stuff, but I mean, I saw it yeah. all over. Well, she is definitely a favorite daughter yeah. of Detroit. Well, let's go get her. Okay. Uh, I think it's time. I, I just want to be clear from a feminist perspective that I always get the guest, not because I'm the woman, but because I sit near the door. Right. Let me give you a little. I know uh, people are tired of hearing us talk about how small the grotto pot is, know, but let me just tiresome. explain to you that when I get into my little perch over <laughs> here, getting out. furthest from the door, I can't get out. Right. So that's why right. BQ always has to go get the guests. It is in no Sorry. way a reflection of any attitudes, any no. retro attitudes, no. No. Uh, caveman type attitudes. Right. We like, don't have those here. I make Larry bring the breath mints. I always bring the breath mints. Right. I always have them. So that's my little job. Yeah, and I'll be and cooking dinner at home tonight. Correct. So let's go get Francis. Okay, here I go. Francis Stroh, welcome to the Grotto Pod. First question for you. Uh, I like starting like that because it sounds like it's going to be like the third degree. Question number one. Uh, This is a question for Bridget. Oh, no. Have you ever gone by Franny? Oh, yeah. This was my question. I wonder if she ever went by Franny because, you know, I'm from not really the Midwest, but middle of the country. Francis's were Franny. I've never heard you call Franny. And I thought maybe you had a Salinger period. I did, in fact, have a Salinger period, and it was uh, from the day I was born until 1995 when I was 28 years old. It was when I moved to London Mm. uh, that I just decided to switch over to Francis. I'd been going by Francis professionally as an artist for years at that point and decided that the schism needed to go away. So it happened. But is that weird? Uh, Because, you know, I got a dumb name. And I always figured maybe someday I'll emerge like what, a what butterfly do you mean you have a from dumb a chrysalis. Name? I hate my first name. Larry my, or Lawrence? Either one. But oh. my middle name is Eric. I thought maybe I'll just be Eric, but uh-huh. I can never pull the trigger. Couldn't How do, do you get people to stop calling you Franny right. if they've called you that until you're 28? I didn't. I, okay, yeah. All my old friends still okay, call me it. Franny. Got it. Um, and everyone who's known me since 95. Yep. Calls me Francis. So yep. it's interesting. Sometimes a newer friend sort of who's either read my book or heard an older friend call me Franny. They'll try to leap over into Franny Yeah, land. they sort of like try to get into the Franny camp. <laughs> and you're like, no, no. Depending on Camp's the friend, you know, it's, it's, it's actually cool for a few people who've switched over. I have no problem with it. Interesting. You know, I actually notice this all the time and specifically with writers that we do seem to have two names and that there's this dividing line between the people who, like, if I were to publish a book as Lawrence Rosen, I'd be professionally Lawrence Rosen. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know, Larry. Like, I know. That oh, makes you cool then. Yeah, you're on We've the We've talked about this before, yeah. like Toby yeah. Wolf. Yeah, Toby Wolf. If you're friends exactly. with Toby, he's Toby. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, so but I'm just saying. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a little bit of a... Of a I like it, yeah. The nickname thing, so it works. I grew up with a Franny. Did I you? wonder if she goes by Francis now, but she's not famous that I know of. Perhaps she is, and I just don't know. Well, you know, Could I be. know Freddie. It went to Fred at a certain point, and not that Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the uh, no, serious is <laughs> uh, literary discussion, right? So, Francis, in our uh, Franny, let's talk about beer. Francis in our uh, introduction. I mentioned that your book has been out. Was it May? It came out. May of 2016. So you've been running this, running on this treadmill for nine months. Yeah, nine or ten months. And I want you to be here as an expert in post-book release authordom. I know you look. You look great. You look relaxed. So you're not exhausted. Didn't do me in. I guess. I know. It was actually a lot of fun. It was. Oh, that's great. Totally invigorating. Went to. You know, cities where I knew a lot of people, which is what writers should do. For sure. And um, and essentially invite all your friends and turn it into a big party. And you were able to do that better than most. I, I had a blast doing it. I did a, an event in Marin. I did one in San Francisco. I did one down the peninsula. Um, went to L.A. to... Um, Hang out in West Hollywood. Always fun. Yeah, always a blast. And then um, really like the sort of 
grand finale, even though it wasn't the last event, but it was the biggest one, was um, in Detroit. Of course. At the yeah. Contemporary Art of Detroit. Course. I did another event with 826 Michigan. Um, so fantastic. Where I was the featured author at their Story Makers Dinner oh, in Ann Arbor. Oh, so nice. Great fundraiser they do every year. So, um, but, and wait, was there Stroh's beer at all of these events? All of these events. It was flown out. Yep. I had people's grandmothers packing up boxes, cases of Stroh's beer in New Jersey Aww. and like shipping it out here. That's nice. Like restaurant owners, parents, grandparents. So excellent. Even, you know, illegally shipping it over state lines. Um, because most Violating states, the man yeah, act? Yeah, most states you're not allowed to ship <laughs> I know. beer out of state. Right. I know. totally bizarre law, but... Which, so to get it in California is almost impossible without doing something Beer illegal. boosting. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit, though, because I think we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't explain what the book was about. <laughs> like, why are we talking about it? <laughs> Let's focus on it. That's so random. What sort of writer is this? I went right to the heart of it, the yeah. beer. It's, the book, it, first of all, friends, is called Beer Money, beer Money, which we have agreed is the best title ever. Yeah. Thank you. It's a great yes, title. It's memorable and it seems to work. So good. And it has beer and money mm-hmm. in yep. the title. And there's that double entendre. Yes, there is. Which works mm-hmm. very well for the themes. Yes. And I think as far as uh, for a publisher or an agent or anyone looking to sell a, a work, it was irresistible. So tell the listeners a little, just capsulize what is the book about? Well... The book is really my coming-of-age story um, as an artist within the Stroh's beer family. And um, my family originally came over from Germany. My great-great-grandfather came uh, with a family recipe. Um, they made beer back in Germany. Every inn, innkeeper had a beer recipe, and they owned an inn. They made beer. He came to the States, learned how to brew sort of American style in Pennsylvania beginning in 1848, and then went to Detroit and opened first his own brewing sort of facility in his basement where he was brewing his beer and then delivering it door to door out of a wheelbarrow in Detroit. So sweet. Um, Eventually, he grew it into a pretty big operation, and um, it was called the Lion Brewing Company. In those days, then his son uh, Bernard Jr. and and his other son Julius took over the company. They turned it into the Stroh Brewing Company um, around the turn of the century, and went on to be very successful. Made it through prohibition by selling malt syrup and ice cream. Oh yeah, clever syrup. Yeah, very clever. Mm-hmm. And then Julius bought out his brother Bernard. During Prohibition, very clever guy. So uh, not going to last forever. On the the low. Almost nothing. Right. Um, Beer was not selling for the first time in human history. Exactly. The company really wasn't worth very much. It was worth maybe the you know the earth that it was built on, and um, and then it just took off after Prohibition. Julius was very aggressive. He had huge vats of beer ready and waiting for when Prohibition was repealed. He was the only brewer in Michigan that was ready and totally took off. And then my grandfather took over, brought in um, a can plant, and um, really um, was very stubborn about keeping the family recipe all through World War II um, when hops and wheat were rationed mm-hmm. and everybody was watering down their beer formulas to keep up volumes. My grandfather refused to do that and so gave up market share during those years because of his principles. Um, very admirable, but um, this was a trend that continued in the next generation mm-hmm. um, when the light beer trend came around in the 80s and my uncle Peter Stroh was running the company and he didn't jump on the light beer bandwagon in time. And at that point, it was a Forbes 400 company that essentially, because of that decision and a few other poor strategic decisions, um, plummeted to essentially broke. And at its peak, was it number six in the in the world? Number th- Well, no, the third largest brewer in the U.S., in the but US. the largest privately owned brewery right. and the largest private beer fortune in the U.S. Which so, is incredible to think when you think about Coors and it is. Bush. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But I, 
I'm glad you describe it that way because, you know, all the press are like, well, they blew through a billion dollars. You didn't blow through it, really. I mean, the company didn't fail because you were blowing money. It was just strategic missteps. True. And strategic missteps. And we were blowing through our money. And, you know, meanwhile, throughout those years, as the principal and the, as the value of the business was declining, there were shareholders in the fourth generation. I'm a fifth generation Stroh family member, but the shareholders in the fourth generation. So your dad's generation. Were, my father, my uncles and aunts, they were used to a certain lifestyle. Of course. And... So they continued, the board continued to pay dividends to the shareholders in the, at the levels that they were accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And so that was starting to come out of principle after a while, and then everything dried up fairly quickly. Now, <clears throat> I feel like I read, I read the book a few months ago. That's really the hook that gets you in, but it's really a book about family. True. And the and travails. Family. And Not, yeah, it's about the family. travails of a family. It's, it's exactly. It's really the personal side mm-hmm. of right. enterprise. That's, I would say the fortune and the beer is the backdrop. Mm-hmm. I agree. It is with the that. hook. It's what draws you in. Mm-hmm. So when you were writing the book. Uh, you know, it's hard sometimes, especially when you're telling your own story, says someone who has a memoir that has not been bought, uh, to know, and, and Larry's waving from across the table, uh, to know what's interesting and what isn't, right? Especially when you have this giant story that's super exciting. And you don't want to leave the, anything out. Right. So how do you decide, how, what was the sifting process like? Um, that's a very interesting question. It really boiled down to three threads um, that I thought were important. And of course, this happens through, you know, multiple drafts and presenting the work to one's writer's group and writer friends. But what I arrived to eventually was um, that it was really my story. Mm -hmm. The narrator, you know, is a creation, a construction, but is ultimately, it's from my point of view. And I really wanted to focus on this idea of um, the importance um, that I found in my own life and that I wish my father had discovered within his own life of pursuing one's passion, figuring Mm -hmm. out who one is in the world, carving out an identity, and only then might you have something to bring back because he to was a family business. He was misplaced as a beer heir. He really was. He was an artist at heart. And a photographer. He was, he was a photographer mm-hmm. and a cartoonist but during the years he was in um, the Army. But he just was never happy working for the family business. Right. And so his example really sort of lit a fire under me to pursue my dreams to be an artist, which eventually evolved into becoming a writer. Mm -hmm. But for many, I started as a photographer, which makes sense since I had sort of witnessed my father taking pictures, being extremely talented, but never doing much with his work, being, you know, too nervous or shy to have exhibitions and put his work out there. And he ended up sort of being an amateur photographer who took beautiful pictures of his friends. And his family, which is family. so nice for you to have. So many fantastic photographs. That they really are. And they really, exactly yeah. the end of this era. Exactly. They're kind of eerie else, in a way. They are. And oh, for no sure. no one else's work possibly could. I could see a book of his photographs. I really could. But so the book... The, I'd love to see that happen. <clears throat> I feel like the book is sympathetic to your family, but I also feel like having known, knowing the backstory that it wasn't received that way. The genesis of it was, and I actually want to get to that too, what, what spurred you to write it. There was an article in Forbes in 2014 where you were interviewed about your family and it was not received well by the rest of the family. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, and if and how that led to you deciding to write a memoir? Which is interesting, especially because that's every memoirist nightmare that right. you'll tell your story and it will be received badly by your family. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let me just preface this by saying that the the, the book was finished mm-hmm. um, at the time. That oh, I did the book the was Forbes, already finished. Yeah, I, okay. at the time that I did the Forbes interview. And the reason I did the Forbes interview was I had published part of the book as a she-book. And I that thought, I remember, whoa, yep. great, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, I could sell 
thousands of copies of my she book and be able to present this to publishers. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, yeah. And she books for listener, that's Laura Frazier's imprint. Exactly. Grotto member. Mm-hmm. So it was a great, great thing to do this she book. I had a publicist I was working with for a couple of months and he got a feature in Forbes, which is, seemed like a big deal at the time. And, and, and just to be clear, she books are like Kindle singles. They're a story, but pretty short, like for attention spans of people in very busy lives, you can sit down and kind of get through it in one sitting. So, exactly. Sorry to interrupt, but just to be clear. And I basically had a chapter of my book right. published as a she-book that worked as a standalone piece. And so, unfortunately, the tone, I, it was presented to me as, you know, Forbes wanted to profile me. You know, this Stroh family member was writing this memoir. Well, it ended up going in a very different direction. Mm-hmm. Many other former employees were interviewed. They dug up a lot of information about the family on the Internet. Some tragedies that had befallen the family were published in this piece. So it became um, more lurid. It did. It became a very sort of salacious, almost tabloid-style piece, which was not what I was expecting. And naturally... Wow, what was that like to just be... Like the moment when you realize that's what it is. Um, It was shocking. I think I just... It was so shocking in the moment. It was my first experience with any publicity and, you know, to have something happen on that scale. Right. So hard. It was so disappointing and um, impactful Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the family's reputation. Mm -hmm. It was just, and it was a very difficult thing to go through. And I was uh, as upset as other family members were. Right. Understandable. Was there any upside at all? Was any of the attention received positive? Um, I, I, I'm not sure if there was upside. What I do know, it, it didn't lead to more she-book sales necessarily because, unfortunately, they didn't mention she-books in the piece. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember reading that. <laughs> they didn't that. link to it. Um, but I did, I had an agent at the time that the piece came out. We were already getting the book ready to send out to editors. I was, I sold the book at auction whether the Forbes piece played a role in that or not, I have no idea. Well, it brings up something that I also want to talk about. So, you know, the, the buzzword for writers now is platform. Raise your profile. You know, have a platform. You Done. Already, yeah, you had one already. Right. In terms, Yes, absolutely, because of the reputation and the history of our brewing business. The platform was there. And I guess in that sense, the Forbes piece just sort of revealed that the platform was there. Like, hey, you know Stroh's, but you don't know what really went on. put the name back into the American Mm -hmm. consciousness. Because as we discussed in the intro, if you're of a certain age, you are definitely very familiar with Stroh's. Right, immediately. We're like, oh, Stroh's, of course. But if you came of age after it all went south, you may not be familiar with it until now that it's come back. Right. Now, you know. And and interestingly, um, the publication of the book last May dovetailed with the relaunch of Stroh's Beer in Detroit. Um, Pabst are the new, I mean, they're right. the new owners now. They've been under a couple of different um, roofs and owners in the last 10 to 15 years since the they youngsters purchased love the Pabst. Stroh brand. They love yes, the Pabst. they do. So, and so with Pabst, with the new owner, um, the current owner of Pabst decided to do was launch a bunch of our old brands and sort of do like a PBR thing mm-hmm. by in cities of origin and just come up with a whole bunch of other hipster brands that so are It's super today. smart. And it's brilliant. Yeah. But and unfortunately, I'm amazed that, you know, the, the former owner didn't do that. Unfortunately, too late for the Stroh family. Too late for the Stroh family. No, the family does not benefit from that at all. There are no royalties. But, <laughs> but I, I remember think it's a fantastic thing that the beer is back in Detroit. Oh, yeah. and it's an old recipe and yeah. it's a great package. Everything about it is great. I remember when I first saw on Facebook, you know, we, I'm having a reading here and there'd be a, a package of Stroh's. And I would think, where is she getting them from? Where like, I just didn't it? know. Does she have a time machine? Yeah. <laughs> old beer <laughs> can't to, still be good. Is it like go wine? I mean, I really room? didn't know. It wasn't until I figured out, oh, it's still stuff. being made somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so Paps was making sort of the older wine in the blue can yeah. in small quantities, very limited distribution. But then they came out with this new recipe that's really an old recipe, actually from the 1850s that my grandmother oh, wow. and my grandfather great-great-grandfather had and then got passed down 
And my grandfather stashed it away somewhere. And when the company was sold, Paps kept all of those recipes. But so there's got to be a little pride seeing those cans again. You know, have it. She's nodding for yes. those of you. <laughs> well, it's it's just like a whole new look, but with an older motif. It's mm-hmm. just it's interesting. It's sort of this retro look, but you know, different style bottle. But they revived the old packaging on mm-hmm. some level because th- what happened in the 90s was um, someone on our board advised us to just do a facelift for the Stro brand mm-hmm. and we changed the packaging completely and that was we lost 40% market share Ooh. in a single year. I was going to say that is a kind of thinking where you can look back and say exactly the wrong thing Don't at the wrong suicide. time. Right? They remember New strategic Coke? Strategic suicide. Yeah, New Coke. Or what? Yeah, that was a disaster. New and Coke, I think clear that actually Pepsi. happened before we did the New Yeah, strip. it did. Yeah. So we, it was the 80s. That should have been a teachable moment, but it wasn't. But in your book, you go, you, you really delve into the psychology of losing a family business. And on some level, even though it's not your business anymore, it must feel good to see, well, it lives still. You know, my kid can see the name. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's valuable. It's valuable to know that the brand, because it was so emblematic of the American dream itself, and it was the beer that the auto workers drank in Detroit, and it was so sort of wrapped up in Detroit's identity. Right. That, you know, that today is still uh, in many ways more valid than ever as Detroit has become this almost theme park for America's <laughs> the, manufacturing The comeback past. kid, yeah. Right. So we got, we got money. We got an iconic brand. We got family tragedy. We got beer. We got the American dream. Where's Francis? Am I speaking out of turn to say that the book was I mean, among the people I know here that released books, I feel like yours was the most eagerly awaited. You know, that it had sort of a built-in audience. And remember, I kept it. You're going to be famous. You're going to be famous. <laughs> so it came out. And what happened? Well, it's been a... I can't say enough about how much fun I've had in the last 10 months. And awesome you know, how much support. Like, mm-hmm. it feels as if all of these portals have opened. And all of these amazing people, not only in the literary community, mm-hmm. but um, now with um, the publication of the New York Times profile and the wealth section, suddenly the business community is embracing the book. And I'm, I'll bet. You know, I'm yeah, tell from us. all kinds of people That was there. just a few so, weeks ago. Yeah, tell yeah, us a little bit about that story. Quite amazing. Um, well, Scott James, a great local journalist and novelist, um, wrote this fantastic profile in the New York Times. It was published in the wealth section. And, um, and he really sort of told... The story from the point of view, like you guys are doing today, of, um, you know, sort of what has gone on since the book came out. And let's have a more sort of global view of what this story means. And it was a very balanced piece sort of between, you know, the tale that I tell in the book and this idea of the dissipation of wealth in a larger sense and how it happens to these dynasties that... Um, where the generations get bigger and bigger and bigger, and even if the businesses continue to be successful, they can't fund. It's just diluted. The individual, right? It, it dilutes. Mm-hmm. There's too many wealth. people. Yeah. So um, in our, in my family's case, that was going on at the same time that the wealth mm-hmm. was declining, and so it's right. just a more extreme example. Um, but what I loved about the piece that Scott did was, um, I had wanted to focus um, on 826 Michigan and the piece and really shine a light on them because of the work that I've been doing with them for the last so year and a half. And and the piece really came full circle and did shine the light in that direction. And that meant a lot to me. And the fact that they linked to 826's website so nice. and um, really just brought forward the wonderful work that those guys are doing in Detroit. And so it's been a great partnership um, between myself and A26 Michigan um, since um, as I was sort of ramping up to the publication of the book and since the book has come out because um, I discovered before publication that they were going to be building a Detroit tutoring center as I'd hoped mm-hmm. and so we got together on that and I helped them make that happen but also really to just 
bring as much attention to what they were doing as possible. And I'm continuing to do that in different ways. It's so fantastic to see what's happening in Detroit. Um, My husband is from Toledo and grew up in Toledo in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, to see where things were, I mean, Detroit and Toledo were Mm -hmm. very similar in terms of manufacturing and money and even just union jobs that were fantastic Mm -hmm. and where they are now or where they were, say, five years ago. But both places are crawling out a little bit with really innovative things, and it's exciting, and it's hopeful. How much do you think that Chrysler commercial helped? Do you remember the Chrysler commercial? With Bob. No, that was the Cadillac commercial with Bob Dylan. It was during the Super Bowl a few years, and we'd make things here. That type of deal. But do they? I don't know. It was very impactful, though. I don't know. Well, I mean, what they make in Detroit now is art. I mean, they make a lot of really... A lot of artists have flooded into Detroit. Detroit and over the last 10 years. It's cheap. I will it's say it's, it's cheap. cheap yeah. yeah. And I will also say as, as an art historian, the Toledo Art Museum and the Detroit Institute of Arts have two of the best collections in America. Absolutely. And people don't realize that. And it's because they had a lot of wealth there at a time when you could buy great art. Mm you know, at a reasonable price and Americans had more money than Europeans and were buying fantastic things. So A, recommend everyone go, but B, if you're an artist living in those places, you have access to incredible collections. It's true. And um, right after the bankruptcy mm-hmm. in Detroit, right. um, that collection at the DIA was under siege. I know. And they were able to save it, which, which is incredible. Short of a miracle. I mean, I cannot tell you how incredible that collection is. It is fabulous. And the building's fabulous. Everyone should go. Everyone should go. Let's get down to nuts and bolts. Uh, BQ's book's been out for two weeks, and I can tell you as a witness that I look tired. She's like a chicken with its head cut off. <laughs> I think you oh, look great. One of the reasons Thank we, you. One of the reasons we brought you here was to sort of talk her down off the ledge. <laughs> oh no, I'm not on a ledge in a bad way, in a personal way. It's not in a bad way, but just you know, tell us. Share with our, our. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Tell me what to do. You knew what you were doing at that launch. I went to. That was oh, brilliant. You seemed very relaxed. Thank you. And um, totally articulate as always. But mm. how has it been? It's just I. I was telling Larry. It's exactly. And if I've said this already on air, I apologize. It's exactly like before you had kids, and people said. Uh, this is going to take over your life. You can't believe how crazy it's going to be. And you think, oh, please. I know it's hard, but I've got this. Uh, it's just so it's much. So at once. It, is it the, all the interviews? Like, what's the it's, hardest part? The hardest part is that my life is exactly the same with all of this on top of it. And it was already right. very full. So I just, time management is an issue. I just found out I paid my kids tuition uh, three weeks late. Oh, that's how big the pile of bills Let's on the desk is. No interest accrued. I don't know. I'm waiting to find out. And there's a lot of things like that. Like I'm just dropping balls in a bad way. So um, and trying not to freak out about it, and also just trying to enjoy it because it's awesome. Just it's give them so a free copy of your book. Exactly. All will be well. <laughs> Maybe that's I'll it. I'll do an event. That will be an explanation and a gift. Describe all in the same moment. Is there a sense? And I guess this is for both of you um, that once this book comes out and you're wanted to do a lot of these things that you're your life in some ways no longer your own, that kind of your book owns your life. And also you don't know what to say yes and no to. I want to, so much to be generous. I so much want to be a person who can help 826, you know, or what, whatever it is. But you can't be two places at once, and I still have my family at home and my well, other so, relationships. And, so, you know, Francis, the 826 thing, is that something you latched onto early and said, all right, I can only pick one cause, you know, to do good as well as doing well? That didn't come out. Yeah, I think out, that right. is right. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious decision? Like, I'm going to make it this one. I'm going to focus on these guys. Yes, it was a conscious decision. I decided to just, I wanted to make an impact, a meaningful impact in Detroit. I am hyper aware that the core issue there that continues to plague the city is the fact that the school system has Mm. completely crumbled and, and kids just aren't getting access to the tools that they need to thrive um, within an educational context. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, I feel that the work 826 is doing is, you know, they're going to the heart of Of the the matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more so 
all, in every city where they're they're doing the great work that they're, they're doing, but especially in Detroit, I can't think of a city that could benefit from the work that they do more. And so knowing that my book was dovetailing with the opening of this new tutoring center, um, just it felt like the timing was perfect and we decided to partner up. And it's make it so happen. good. Was it hard to fit in with the other demands? I'm sure you have people on the other side saying, no, no, the bottom line is here, appearances that sell books. That's what we want from you. Was it hard to get that, you know, to, no, I'm going to do this? Um, well, I decided that I would just pick and choose the events and, you know. So I, you were I, able I, to... I actually was pretty good about sort of pacing. Yeah, she was Having able time to, say to no. rest in between events. I was not, I was not, I wasn't clear it was going to blow up suddenly. So I had already scheduled events. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's all good for me right now. It's fine, but it's, well, it's more than I thought. It's an interesting contrast then because I feel like your book, you knew you were prepared for it to be pretty large and you were not. Right. Okay. Maybe that's, yeah. And and I actually, I started scheduling events like a year before right. publication. Right. And I sort of, of course, added some in, but I kind of sort of had a picture of what the two months post-publication would look like. And so what did you do with your son? You know, in terms of managing what the time you're in San Francisco, the time you're away. I mean, I'm sure even when people go to writers' conferences or whatever it is, right. you know, that's always an issue. And your son is 14, 15? He's 13. 13. Um, so he had just turned 13 when mm -hmm. the book came out. And he, um, I would sort of fly down to L.A., spend two nights, come back. He would be with his dad. That, you know, it, then at one point... He, he came to New York. He was there for my... I, That's I nice. didn't see him for a week when I was mm -hmm. in Detroit. Then we met in New York at Greenlight Bookstore. That's I think nice. they had just flown in that day. And then we had a few days together, and then he went off to summer camp uh -huh. for a few weeks. So and good then, timing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that the timing worked out perfectly. Then when he finished camp, we went off on a vacation together in Spain. So I kind of set it up so that we would have this together time that's awesome. To make up did for the you, time that I was away. Mm -hmm. Did you try to coordinate publications so it would be at the end of school so he'd have more flexibility? It didn't. I did not try to coordinate, coordinate it that way. It worked out, it that, worked way. out that way. It was perfect because actually originally the book was going to come out in February and then it got pushed to May and that couldn't have worked out better. I know February would be really hard. It would be really hard, hard yeah. yeah. Mine came out in March. <laughs> <laughs> Early March. So how much of this, and I'm a, you know, no, no book for me, but so how much of, of all this you keep saying, you know, I planned this, I planned this. Are you working, you have a publicist. What's the publicist doing? Uh, well, I had, while I, when the book launched, I had my fantastic publicist at HarperCollins, and then I was also working, her name's Catherine Beitner. She could not be better. I was also working with an another amazing publicist um, who I hired as my personal publicist, Lauren Saran, who's a fabulous literary publicist. A lot of people have worked with her and know her. And um, between the two of them, things couldn't have gone better. It was sort of like there was some mainstream media stuff. There was some very sort of literary... So there were no... Um Clashes as far as responsibilities, as no, far as people stepping on each other's toes. Yeah, that is fantastic. That is not a story that you regularly hear. So you know, that's I was in, fabulous. I was in such good hands with so good. them. I can't say enough about both of them and how well it all, how well they rolled the whole thing out. So good. And now I'm lucky enough to be working with Catherine Beitner again on the paperback. Paperback. So, um, so when the book came out, obviously it had a level of expectation. How much pressure on was it to reach or exceed those expectations? Were you checking, you know, checking sales every day? Or would have, I, you know? No, I've, I never, I just, I only asked about sales once and it was last July. And then I never thought to ask about it again. Um, and then what happened was when the New York Times piece came out, um, Amazon ran out of books, sort of at the height. Of this is every, a story I have heard many times. Yeah, it was really frustrating. Really? That seems like yes. it'd be kind of like Listen, a, yeah, I just Amazon tried, couldn't keep no, me No, because... Stock. Well, except that when it's the week that your profile, you know, by some 
miracle hits the home page of the New York Times and everyone wants your book and it's not there, then you feel that would be as a if problem. you've missed an opportunity. You know, I just went so. to buy a friend's book on Amazon because I wanted it to meet me someplace. I'm just going to have it delivered there. Otherwise, I would buy it at my local independent bookstore. Sure. Um, right. And it was sold but out most already. people, unfortunately, do. It, right. Amazon's just their go-to. But I, I thought, oh, I'll just do this and I can get it sent to mm-hmm. Montana because I'm going to fly in there. And uh, sold out. It's only been out maybe six weeks, which is great wow. news, kind wow. of. But I thought, that's a bummer for her. It's a bummer, yeah. you know? Yeah. You want well, to- and so this, my book went into a second printing in its third week. And so HarperCollins was fantastic at keeping up with, you that's know, sort great. of preemptively printing more books. And so that never happened. That's great. Um um, and they said even now, like with the New York Times piece, if they had to, they would do another printing of the hardback mm-hmm. if they needed to. I don't know that they will. But what I do know is that, you know, it was pretty much – it's almost sold through. And so it will be – the timing of the paperback will so, be perfect. So maybe you That's haven't great. been concerned about sales because it's selling. And no one's had to say, well, you know, it's not doing what we had hoped. No one has said that. Doesn't sound like they had to. Um, I think it did. I think that sort of extra kick that the New York Times piece gave it mm-hmm. has been very it's welcome. Such and, perfect you know, timing. Sort of perfect because there mm-hmm. won't be any hardcovers lying around when the paperback so good. comes out. And so yeah, so the paperback was that always part of the plan? I think it was. Yeah, I mean, I I think they base it on sales, but I think it might. I remember asking my agent who I adore, Rob McQuilkin, about this as we were signing the contract with Harper. And he said, you know, he said it would be unusual um, with this kind of a contract if there weren't if there paperback. Weren't. So. And now I know you've been cross-promoting Stroh's beer. Have they been cross-promoting your book oh, in return? Oh, good question. <laughs> that is a good question. They actually offered to do some events for me when I come back to Detroit I'm not taking them up on that because I have so many – I have a lot of opportunities back there, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a huge audience for the book. So I'm doing some big library events there when the paperback comes out. I'm going to be doing um, the speaker series at Google in Ann Arbor, which would be great. Oh, wow. That sounds fabulous. And there's just – there's. I always feel like I just – you don't want to overdo it anywhere you go. Yeah. just sort of – Yep. I think a few events. Um, I was thinking more of an advertising, enough. like Louis Vuitton, but Stroh's, <laughs> Francis, book, beer. You right. know what? They I go together. They a lot. I think people have wondered if we had sort of partnered. Yeah, because of the I could timing. see that because of the timing. Yeah, I could and see that. They. I mean, it yeah. has got to have been good for the beer. It does. I'm sure yeah. it was good for the beer, but yeah. I think like an they, they the wanted – I had the sense, and I'm not sure how I know this, but somehow I do know this. I had the sense that, like, they wanted – you know, when they were asked, they would say, no, you know, there's no connection. It was just yeah. coincidental, and, and that is true. But, um, but, no, we have not partnered in terms of the marketing. Let me ask you a harder question, the hard questions. Ooh. So you have been promoting the hardcover for almost a year, or at least you've had events requiring that. The uh, paperback is coming out. Have you been able to start a new project? Do you have something else you're working on? I do. I haven't had, especially, I wouldn't say because of book launch events or, you know, stuff that's happened since then that's book related, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm working on a novel it's. I'm just starting to get into a regular routine with it. It's hard. I think what really got in the way actually was my son's high school application process uh, last was, fall. It's funny you say that because I was gonna. I was gonna ask you, was he already in high school when you started all this? Because that process in San Francisco, if you don't know, is harder than going. It was way more than going to grad school. Here's the good news. By the time you're applying for college, and you know this, yeah, piece of cake, they do it themselves. Right? Yeah, you're so used to it. You've been doing it since kindergarten. I, yeah, I, yeah, that's I true. heard a guy today complaining about preschool, getting his kid into preschool, and how what a nightmare it was. And I, I wanted to say, but I didn't because I didn't want to be that parent. Get used to it, dude. This is going to be this your life it. for the next right. however long you live in this town. <laughs> uh, not to be too inside baseball, but where is he going? So at the moment, he is deciding between university, high school, and urban. So two amazing choices. Two very distinct choices. Very, very Very distinct distinct choices. Do you still live in the city? We do. So also very close to you. And I actually know where Francis lives because – do you even know this? Do you know this story? 
You might this know. is your because, life, Francis well, yeah, Stroh. Yeah, we said that. We, we, we shared a babysitter when my child was a toddler, and I think yours was a baby. Um, she lived near you, and my son's kindergarten and her preschool, your house was in between. So the babysitter would pick her up, take her to your house. This is way before I had no idea Frances was a writer. She definitely didn't know I was one. Well, was Frances a writer back then? I was. Okay. She, but I mm-hmm. did find that out because I was a high school teacher at the time at the same school where our kids went to school, where my daughter went to school and where your son where eventually went, started. Where yeah. mm-hmm. And um I, see, I don't use my child's name on yeah. air because Larry told me not to, but it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> You're a public figure. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I knew that Frances was a writer eventually because one day she was she had already come home and when I went to pick up Zuzu, and uh, she was working on some manuscript pages, and I said, oh, what are you doing? Uh, and she said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing some stuff and I'm editing. And I was too embarrassed to tell her I was a writer because I thought she's just going to think I'm a high school teacher you know and she's what? not going to take me seriously. I think that's, oh, no. That is legit. That's terrible. And now here, here we, we are. are. That is to- here you are in a broom closet. That is totally legit. But Talking is, about the writing life. But it is a small town. One, it's a small town. Two, it can happen any time. Like we right. were both working on our writing. It, we weren't recognizable to anyone else at that time necessarily that's as right. writers. But we going. kept working. And that's, that's the point. The ticket. And the kids are in high school. And, and here we are. Here we are. Thank Both God. Published authors. <laughs> yep. Um, as we're starting to wrap it up a little bit, um, Francis. So I know, you know, we talked a little bit about the bumpy road with your family in response to the Forbes article. But what do they think of the book? Well, the family members who have reached out to me have been extremely supportive. Um, one thing I will say is my mother has been my greatest champion throughout this whole process. She was giving galleys to her friends and, and Were you surprised? came to as many events as she could. Um, I think when I first started writing the book, mm-hmm. I was worried. I yeah. was saying, you, well, know, you, you don't really know what the finished product will be. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of getting it and out you of sort the of, page. You lay bare some right. family secrets. I do. And my mother just embraced it with all her magnificence. So nice. You know, I've had this conversation with everyone who minds their own life for their work. Like you. Like me. Like, what? how do you do it? Like, I could never say to my mm-hmm. mom and go, oh my God. Um, but I think in the mo- for the most part, it turns out mothers and fathers, they just are so proud of what you did. <laughs> If they're good mothers and fathers, I think that that's true. That they're cool true. with whatever's in it. I think that's true. That's really fantastic. And it's, But it's not the case with every writer we know. So no, when it, not at all. Know, when families do respond with that kind of support, right. um, it's just, it really is a testament to the connection that's there. For sure. And people's understanding of what making art is, you know, to not take it so personally to mm-hmm. understand that you've made something fantastic in the world and to be proud of that outside of the experience is, you know, really broad-minded and big-hearted, I think. Well, and also understanding that, Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to write a memoir and you're not going to be honest, then what's the point? That's right. Yeah. You, you, you need to go deep. I call it getting down and dirty with your scenes <laughs> and yourself. Um, it's just, yeah. It's very important in a memoir. And for that matter... In a novel, I think um, there needs to be skin in the game. How's the how's the transition from memoir to novel going for you? It's actually going well. It's just sort of wrestling with you know, kind of going back and forth with the first person and close third, mm. um, playing with that. Is but it is it hard to things need to be figured out if, as always with any book? Is it hard to adjust at all to the idea that oh wait, this doesn't have to be true? It's a novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really, I had been writing fiction for years before I wrote the memoir, so I um, it's not it's not hard to adjust to that at all. But I feel as if it's our personal lives that drive our subject matter for sure, no matter why. For sure, mm-hmm. so that will always be there. Yeah, I always feel like it's it's to say something's autobiographical to me means it's an issue that you wrestle with. Not that, oh, yeah, I did go buy a soda on that day at that store. 
It's really true what people often observe that if you're writing fiction, everyone wants to know what in it is true. And when you're writing nonfiction, they all accuse you of making things up. <laughs> it's yeah. bizarre. And yet really, really, the, I find it in myself, the impulse, like what in this is, yeah, you know, who, sometimes, I'll, sometimes you'll be reading a novel and you'll think, huh, and you go and Google the author just to find out more about them, just to see, like, is this yeah. close to their experience? or is Oh, this... she did work on a ranch when she was Yeah, 15. or whatever right. it is. And I don't know, what is that impulse? Why do I care? But you do. That's why. Kind of... Well, because it's some, you're kind of feeling it in a way that you might yeah. not if it's pure invention. Yeah. And I think that's really what drives stuff that kind of resonates with its audience. Mm-hmm. There's some underlying mm-hmm. personal connection. It's like you said, skin in the game. Skin in the game. It feels like skin's in the game. Something's at stake, Mm -hmm. even beyond what's on the page, and that can be very compelling. That's why I I really, since I was a kid, have loved Gatsby, because I read a Fitzgerald biography. I'm like, wow, this is just like self-flagellation, like 300 pages of why he hates himself. Uh, And that makes it better? That totally works for me. Yeah, it can can for me as well, I'm afraid. It totally works for me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've reached the end of another Grotto Pod episode. Um, And our guest is still upright. Our guest is still upright. It's only The temperature is only raised maybe 23 degrees. If we'd gone longer, we'd have gone up to 30 and we'd be carcasses. Um, (laughs) She kept her jacket on. I had to take mine off. There's two episodes in a row where we say that, so next we're going to get feedback. Stop talking about how hot it is. Okay, it's it's pleasant. I still have cold feet, though. Well, that's a personal issue. <laughs> we don't want. To, we don't have time to get into. We're going to have Larry rub them. Not in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> in an actual sense. Where can people get a hold of you? Uh, Fstro at Comcast.net, My vintage email address. Wow, email address. Vintage beer, vintage email. How about a website and a Twitter as well? Well, how about um, www.francisstroh.com? Dot com and Stro is spelled S T R O H. If you're too young to remember the oh, beer, my for goodness. God's sake! Wow. And t- my Twitter handle is at Francis Stro. And when does the uh, paperback come out? May thirtieth. May thirtieth. Right around the corner. Just in time for summer, though. I don't know if I'd call it a beach read. Oh, I would. Really? really? Absolutely. For me, I it think is. that was one of the reasons they launched to make it, it a in beach May read. So you're... it's beer. It's all about you know. It's a beach read. <laughs> I think beach it's a beach beer. read. All right, so you're going to be beach on the beach beer. this summer. You're going to see all these people reading the paperback version of Beer Money. And if you see that, take a picture and put it on Instagram and tag Francis. Yeah. There, done. As for us, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at the Grotto Pod. Uh, at the Grotto Pod. At the Grotto Pod. Have Facebook slash Grotto Pod. You can email us. At the Grotto Pod at gmail.com? Grotto Pod. Oh, no, the. At gmail.com. I'm obviously not monitoring this account. You can follow her at B Quintress with two N's. <laughs> I spelled my name wrong on the last podcast. The one that was focused on her. She spelled it wrong. I spelled you, my name, my own name. Incorrectly. You lost some followers that day. <laughs> no biggie. You can follow me at that Larry Rosen. And of course, if you want to hear me talk about being Jewish, listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? Find us, is it good for the Jews? Dot com. And say you love the music that's played on the Grotto Pod. Which is done by? Sugartown. And you can find them at, on Facebook, no, at Sugartown, California. Right. That's how you find them on Facebook. And you should because Zoe Fitzgerald Carter. Grotto member. Grotto member, lead singer, musician, fabulous. Playing that music to put you in the mood to listen to the Grotto Pod. Exactly. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Awesome. That's all for this week. BQ, take us home. Grotto Land, read, write, and just keep working. Be like Francis. 